0: You're listening to the Fresh Air Sports Hub.
1: Here comes Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt storming, through he takes
0: it again. Down goes Fraser. Down goes Fraser. He hits one. Oh, what a goal! It's Lillard. He got the shot off. It's Live on freshair.org.uk. Hello, welcome to the Fresh Air Sports Hub end of season show with me, Peace Johnson, joined for one more time this year by Alfie Steiner, who's sitting in a beautiful sunny garden somewhere back in beautiful England. Um, looks like the place to be at the moment. I'm stuck in a room It's some pretty shocking weather here in Germany. Uh, but this is it. This is the final show of the year. I'm not going to call it a review show because what we'll actually be doing is looking more forward than backward to all the transfer drama, managerial merry-go-rounds etc that we can expect to see this summer Um, obviously with a little bit of a recap on how last season's Premier League ended with a very dramatic final day. So it's going to be a bit of a bumper episode, I think this one will be longer than the usual hour, so much juicy football gossip to dive into Um, but like I say I think we will start chronologically I think with the end of the Premier League season which was a couple of weeks ago now and then we'll work forward and discuss the various champions league europa league finals and work from there um but yeah we're we'll bringing alfie at this point um to discuss the end of the premier league season and what a ridiculous day it was if it wasn't for 2012 i think that would have been that would have stolen it wouldn't it perhaps the most dramatic final day we've seen
1: yeah it was absolutely crazy um i was watching i was watching the city game as i was watching the the arsenal game as well and, and I must say the City game kind of took my took my focus a bit, I mean, crazy. In a way, I almost felt a bit numb to it just because I'd kind of seen it, that kind of thing happen before. I mean, it was exceptional, don't get me wrong, but in the back of my mind, I was just thinking like, you know, when, when it happened before and nothing would ever live up to that. But nonetheless, it was a great end to the season. And in a way, kind of like, you know, instead of Manchester City steamrolling to like a, Five 0 win over Villa. It showed that, however much money you spend, um, you know, however dominant you are, it could still be those kind of really exciting games that take it down to the wire. And yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it. Did you, did you manage to watch any of the games on the final I day? I did.
0: I caught um part of the Liverpool game. Um, so it's tricky over here actually to watch all the games, which is slightly frustrating on a day like that. I did mm. catch game. I had uh, my goal notifications switched on as well, and I put my phone in my pocket for literally six minutes, which was all it took for to get three goal notifications for Man City, which obviously flips it on its head. But uh, yeah, I felt a little bit for Gerrard actually. I mean, he, he managed to steer Villa to a two goal lead, and then managed to throw it away against Liverpool. So that must have really stung him. But like you say, I mean, you can't begrud- You can't begrudge it, Man City, when you turn it around like that on the final day. Um, you know, like you, how, like you say, however much money you spend, you still got to deal with the pressure and get the job done on the day when it matters, and that's what it did in exceptional fashion. And um, I don't think actually at any point Liverpool were net champions worthy, um, so it wasn't really swinging back and forth as much as you might have thought. But I mean, even so, um, they were one goal away. You know that Gundogan one was the one that won it for City, mm. uh, and I, I mean, it was it was incredible. I mean you know, you're never going to see a final day like that in Germany or France or, you know, only very rarely, even in, you know, Spain and Italy, even only the Premier League could serve up a final day like that. Um, and, you know, that's before we've even discussed the top four in relegation battles. I mean, it was a a crazy, crazy day, really. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think
1: the, the thing was, so, I mean, I remember sitting down and watching them and then the first thing that popped up on the on the uh, on the Sky Sports coverage, was the fact that Liverpool had gone 1 0 down to Wolves really early. Mm. And then you're kind of thinking, well, like, this is going to be a procession for City. Um, and then I can't quite remember when exactly Villa got their first goal. I think it was in the first half. Yeah. Um, it was in the first half, yeah. And then they went 2 0 up. But at that point, Liverpool weren't winning. But there was a little period where I think Liverpool could, if they had scored another and City were losing, then Liverpool would have overtaken them, you know, short for, for a short period of time, but it never happened. So it always felt like City was still sort of in control. But I mean, no, that's not entirely true. Cause when they were 2-0 down, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I, I, I really felt quite excited. Um, but I wonder I, who knows in a in a alternate reality if, if Liverpool had scored a goal in that tiny little window of opportunity, how would that have impacted, you know, City's Response and come back. Whether it would have impacted it at all, um, but yeah, I, I I thought that Villa did really well. I thought City looked kind of shell shocked, and Liverpool kind of laboured to the to the win in the end. I mean, they got got the job done, but it was too late. And and City, you got to say like master masterful uh, substitution by. Pep Guardiola to bring on Gundogan.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. Now was a
1: couple goals. Rodri scored a brilliant goal. I thought Sterling was really good when he came on. So you know that that sort of deep, rich quality squad really paying dividends. But um, yeah, I was sad. I I, I did. I, I I wanted Liverpool to do it. To be honest, because I'm quite bored of City winning every single league title. And at that point, there was still the chance, I think, of a quadruple. Uh, we obviously know that that didn't really pan out in the end. But yeah, I mean, you can't really argue with it. I mean Liverpool were exceptional in the season, got ninety-two points, scored a ridiculous number of goals, and yet they still lost out to City. Um so yeah, I don't know what you made of it. I was I was a bit put out that that Liverpool didn't do it and City won, but the circumstances and the way in which it unfolded, I think it kind of softened the blow a bit. It was like, wow, this is just great. You have got to admire yeah. it for what it is.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I, I I you know I agree with that. I think as I think perhaps slightly differently though. I I was glad when the Champions League final came around that it wasn't Liverpool going for the quadruple. I think that Champions League final would have been virtually unbearable to watch if there was a quadruple mm. on the line. So. I'm I'm you know I'm glad City did it. I was I was back in City, um, in all honesty. I didn't enjoy the moment though at Anfield where somebody clearly started spreading rumors that uh, the Villa had made it 3 all and then everyone in Anfield started celebrating. Um that was a highlight of the day for me. But yeah, I was I was glad that he didn't take the quadruple possibility all the way to Champions League final because that would have been <laughs> very, very difficult to watch.
1: Yeah. No, I mean. I mean- I was kind of rooting for uh I didn't I wasn't against Liverpool doing the quadruple to be honest. I know a lot of people would have been. Um, but yeah, I can understand why people didn't want them to do it and probably would have would have quite enjoyed their not collapse because that would be incredibly harsh, but the fact that they ended with two trophies and not the two main ones that they were they're going for, you know.
0: Well, yeah, I was gonna say I think you know, for all the talk of City Liverpool being you know, two best teams in Europe. And we've spoken about this before and I've kind of, you know, questioned how how do we know how good they are? Because the standard of the Premier League has been, you know, relatively low compared to previous seasons, in my opinion. But they're obviously two very, very good footballing sides. And you look back at this season as we are doing now and Liverpool won the two FA Cup's not a minor trophy, but compared to, you know, the two that they really wanted, it is, and then the League Cup as well. And City, this, you know, this footballing giant came away just with the exact same league trophy they win every season. It you wonder if they both, you know, failed to meet expectations in a strange kind of way. You know, perhaps there were more trophies. I'm you know, it's very surprising one of them didn't walk away with the Champions League. You know, if you look if you know, if you'd asked the question in January, you'd have, you know, you'd have thought one of them was a certain su- certainty to win it. Mm. And then, for example, I just think that to two of them between them, obviously they won all three English domestic trophies, as you would expect them to. But it still feels like they've both slightly underachieved, underachieved.
1: Yeah, I think you could definitely say that. I think Liverpool, look, they had a really strong year. They got uh, essentially, you know, the Champions League final, won the two domestic trophies. I think they competed in every single game possible this season uh, across all competitions. That includes, you know, various other uh, games. But the fact that they fell short and City as well, you know, both of those teams were probably favourites to... I mean, those two were probably the favourites to win the Champions League, either Liverpool or City and Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid saw, saw them both off and... I think just on, on, on uh, perhaps thinking about why maybe they they fell short. I mean, City. I think there are less excuses for City, um, in the sense that they were completely in control against Real Madrid in that Champions League uh, semi-final. And then something crazy happened. I mean, quite like to, to what happened for them against Villa. They're just like three goals or something like that in quick succession. And I do think part of that, you've got to give huge amounts of credit to Real Madrid who just have this crazy aura about them in the Champions League. Um, And so you can kind of think, well, Man City won the league. The point is, they're competing against each other in the Premier League. And I think the, the standard that they both set and, and the high intensity level of their competition means that ultimately, probably like fighting on, for Liverpool, in, in Liverpool's case, fighting on all four fronts, um, you know, really competing with Man City in the league and then having to play Real Madrid, who wrapped up their league title, I think, almost about a month before um, the, game, the Champions League final. So I think Liverpool ultimately probably just run out of steam a bit. And I guess my point is that I think the Premier League, at least between those two, that that level of competition and intensity probably contributed somewhat to the way in which maybe they ended up ultimately not being able to win everything. Um, and I think in a way, you know, everyone likes English teams to do well, or, or at least we do because we're from England, but it kind of is a pleasant reminder that someone like Real Madrid or whoever it might be are still around and and can sort of compete properly with with Liverpool and Man City because it would just be a bit of that's what you want in a european final i mean a lot, a lot of people wanted liverpool versus man city and that would have been a great spectacle but you know you kind of lose the european element of it and you know the premier league as great as it is they kind of dominate fi- european finals and semi-finals recently and, and i think this year was a was a pleasant reminder of european teams continuing to compete at those sorts of levels um And and maybe it's that's because the Premier League's so competitive that that you know that that gives the European clubs a bit of an advantage, but yeah, um, I guess both teams will they'll probably both feel with have mixed emotions because I think City will be very pleased to have pipped Liverpool to the title. Liverpool will be I'm sure having it drummed into them by Klopp that they've had an exceptional season, winning two domestic honours. Just coming so close to that city team, which I think is a great achievement. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if you had any conclusive thoughts on that.
0: Well, I I, I agree with that sentiment that you have there that, you know it's kind of all or nothing, isn't it? With these things. I mean, you can get 90 odd points to the Premier League, and if you come second, you might as well have scored, you might as well have got 60 points. You know, it doesn't if you don't win it, it doesn't really matter how many points you got, but you know, the fact that they did come so close is, is exceptional, really, in all honesty, to run that City team, you know, to the final 10 minutes of the season, as it was, is, is a brilliant effort. I just, you know, I, I always find it straight. I have found it strange the thought that, you know, this, well, it goes to both of them, really. It's an it's f- incredible Man City team, but it wasn't the best ever Premier League season because they got 100 points a couple of years ago. They didn't win the FA Cup. They didn't win the League Cup. They didn't get to the Champions League final. Liverpool have won the Champions League and the Premier League in recent seasons. Granted, they didn't; they've not won the FA Cup for several years, for this year. But as brilliant as these sides are, you know, when you look at it like that, neither of them actually had a particularly great season compared to years gone by. And I don't know if you, you know they're kind of taking trophies off each other. I suppose between them, they won not Like I said, they won all three domestic trophies, but. It, it, it's strange how it panned out. As brilliant as they are, neither of them really had a legendary season. Like neither is the brilliant footballing sides, but they're not going to go down with the Centurions or the Invincibles or the Treble winners. They, they weren't as fabulous as they were, and as brilliant as, we, as we're told they are, and as brilliant as they clearly are. They've not actually set any any records. Really, they're not going to go down in history as the greatest ever English sides.
1: Yeah, and. Look, when you say that, I think as, a, as an Arsenal fan, but also as an English football fan who enjoys competitive football and and is slightly concerned just by Man City's dominance. And look, I, I think I, part of the reason I, I really like Liverpool is because I'm so impressed with the way in which they compete and push uh, Man City so far. I mean, a lot of people have been sort of musing about the fact that, well, thank God for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. Otherwise, City would have won you know the last six or seven titles. At a ridiculous level, um, and I know you can cancel that by saying, "Well, maybe Man City wouldn't be as good without um, without Klopp and Liverpool pushing them so far." But yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a reminder that it's so difficult, however high the level might be, that to to sort of um, have a record breaking season or, or or to be remembered as it sides around. Because again, on paper, you'd say that Liverpool and City are you know, the, the two strongest sides probably in Europe, but they've come unstuck against Real Madrid who are, you know, just this, this excellent kind of team that, that somehow, man, I mean, not somehow cause they've got great players, but you know, no, ever, they, they beat PSG and they'd lost, I think the first leg two 0 or something like that. Uh, they beat Chelsea, they beat Man City and Liverpool, arguably you know the four favourites probably for yeah. the competition this season, and so you're just like you got to just you got to just say well done to them. Um, but yeah, I, I take your point that this Liverpool and um, these Liverpool Man City teams, as great as it is to see this rivalry between them, you, you know that it kind of we're we're so they've set such high levels of expectation now that if they fall slightly short, it's just like oh well, you know they 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 should have won the Champions League or they should have won. The quadruple and it's kind of like I don't know for me I, I, I'd prefer a bit more of a, a level playing field I suppose but that's what all the other teams have got got their work cut out for them over the next few years
0: yeah well let's move on then to some of the chasing pack who were still fighting for top four come the final day of the season loosely I mean it was we're relying on Norwich to get result against Tottenham which was unlikely at best Um, But, you know, these are the sides who we're looking to now to close the gap and Tottenham obviously have taken serious strides under Conte eventually managed to get, managed to kick into gear. Tuchel's Chelsea, you know, the the slightly disappointing season overall, I think, but you expect them to be there and thereabouts. Then obviously you've got Arsenal as well, your side. Um, They're the three sides who completed the top five. Um, So let's talk about that then. I think, first of all, Arsenal had top four in the grasp and then, it, it never materialised in the end.
1: No, um, yeah, it was a, it was a tough one to swallow. Um, I think on the final day we were all holding out hope for for a Norwich miracle, and it became quite clear quite, clear, quite quickly that it was not going to happen. Um, but you know, Arsenal did their job against Everton, and Spurs did their job against Norwich. I think Arsenal. Look, I, I'm uh, having had a few weeks to think about it. I'm 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 still resoundingly positive about the season. I think the way we were playing, the kind of progress we made in in various areas of of the club, and you know the fan connection with the players, and you know we scored a few more goals, and uh, some young players were contributing more goals and assists, and we looked a, be- a lot of a we looked a better side. But you know, ultimately, uh, losing. A couple of key players to injury, season-ending injuries, i.e., uh, Thomas Partey, Kieran Tierney, and not having a goal-scoring centre-forward. Really, um, you know, I know Eddie and came in and, and and did quite well, and he's he's got himself a new contract. And Alex Lacazette did quite well uh, for a period. Once uh, Pierre Emerick was dropped and then shipped out to Barcelona, but we we just lacked the when you compare Arsenal and Tottenham, it's like the what there's such a clear, stark difference. They've got Kane and Son, who, you know, I think in, in 2022 alone contributed something like 35 goals and assists between them. Arsenal didn't come close to that across like five, five of their front players. I think it was like 15 or something like that. So you can see the drop-off big time. But the fact that we finished, you know, a point behind them, also having basically not had a, a proper, you know, Big name centre forward, or, or someone who you you kind of are are fearful of, I think is is something that we can hopefully look forward to next season. But yeah, we we did kind of I don't know, it was in our hands. Um, I think we we we'd let it slip a bit uh, when we lost three games in a row against Palace, Brighton, and. Southampton, and then we managed to beat Chelsea, United, and West Ham on the bounce, and Leeds, and then it looked like it was back on, on, on for us. And then, uh, yeah, the North London Derby came, and that was a bit of a disaster. Just the way that it kind of we Rob Holding imploded, and you know the team just I think the occasion got the better of them. I was watching at an Arsenal pub in Finsbury Park down in London. And uh, it was great for about half an hour, and then it turned very sour. Um, and then I had the pleasure of going to my first away game uh, to the Arsenal Newcastle game, which was great, pretty much until we got in for kickoff. <laughs> um, yeah, we just we didn't show up. Um, you know, our, both our centre backs were were completely injured, but they played. Um, we just lacked we lacked options. We lacked uh, depth. Saka was was exhausted so I think look, we ultimately we fell short on the gamble of not um, signing anyone in January, whether it was the right call or not, that was a gamble that ultimately didn't pay off and I think look, if you had said at the beginning of the season also going to finish fifth, be in contention for the top four, I think that's what I would have been hoping for this season and I know you have to change your expectations during the season and it's hard not to not to feel quite uh, upset by the fact that Spurs did it and we didn't. But look, um, that's how I feel about it in a nutshell. Um, I don't know what you make of it as a, well, not as a neutral, but as a non-Arsenal fan. Um, First of all, how did you
0: find the the climb up to the away end at St. James's Park?
1: mm, (laughs) Yeah, it was good fun. I mean, fortunately, me and my mate, we got really good seats. Um, I was actually on TV. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll send you the video, but it was, I mean, oh, wow. It, it was kind of a silver, silver lining because we'd gone 2 0 down. It was like the 87th minute. Me and my friend, uh, we had a travel lodge booked. And so, and it was pouring with rain. And we were just like, wow, this has been so worth it coming to Newcastle to see this. Uh, top four hopes, uh, you know, snatched from our fingers. And then, you know, the Sky Sports cameras had cut to Anton Deck, sort of celebrating on the, the 87th minute. And then they cut to me. Just looking incredibly miserable sort of with you know going through my on my chin just kind of yeah just contemplating existence so that was quite funny um but yeah no the, the match day experience was was great and the arsenal arsenal gave every away fan a free drink and you know it's just a shame that there just wasn't anything on the pitch that looked like we were kind of in with a chance of competing in that game um but, yeah, it is what it is, you know.
0: I had that as well when Bolton played West Brom a few years ago, back in the Championship, and uh, there was some protest, and I was kept quitting to me on telly, I think, about 10 times during the game. I was like, I really? was the guy that they kept quitting to looking at the lawn <laughs> in the home <laughs> Um So, yeah, I feel that. Um, just final, well, maybe not a final point, but just um, throwing it back to then, the, you know, the season in general, then do you think it's much of a setback missing out on the Champions League? I mean, obviously it was there or you didn't get it, but... Is it a setback, really, or can you, is it still is, is it still progress?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely progress. Look, we finished eighth in consecutive seasons. Uh, we finished fifth this year. Very much clear of the teams below us, very much closer to the top four. Um, look, the, the the Champions League would have been unbelievable and I think would have been an overachievement, regardless of whether we, it was in our hands or not, um, if you look at it in a certain way i think look back to european football that was the most important thing um i think we would have been in a better position if we had qualified for the champions league because that's the better competition you get more money attracts better players the players are more incentivized to stay um, on the flip side look Europa league is great for youth development i think arsenal would have been planning pretty much I, there would have been contingency plans for whatever outcome but we would have been planning for the Europa League. Um, I don't think it's make too much of a difference in terms of our recruitment plans. Um, I think any young players looking to sign new contracts um, won't be deterred too much. And I think it just shows that, yeah, it, I, I think it was a season of progress. Ultimately, fell short of a kind of opportunity that presented itself throughout the season. And I think that's you know not signing reinforcements in January in the way that maybe Spurs did with signing Kulusevski and Bentancur, you can kind of look at that and say, well, that's probably spearheaded them alongside the great form of Son and Kane to, to Champions League. But yeah, look, I, I'm definitely looking at it with a glass half full and I'd say that it's progress. And honestly, I, it's crazy because you just, you're so, at, you're so pained by the end of the season and then straight away, I'm just really looking forward to next season and, you know the way in which Arsenal are going to strengthen and and deepen their squad and compete again and see these young players continue the project. Um, yeah, so I'm 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 very excited. But I don't know what you think about Arsenal because I think they they did receive some 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 good some good press this season in terms of the way in which Arsenal were back and they were playing really well and young players. And then ultimately, I mean, Gary Neville's kind of commentary on the whole. Arsenal collapse kind of thing which look, a lot of people will write about and, and it's an easy way of looking at it but I think look, they're, they're a young team and I think ultimately look we weren't at the level for Champions League like we, we fell short and that's not you know it stings especially because Spurs did it but I don't think it's the be all and end all I think uh, I would have loved it but it's fine I, I'm fine <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it's an upward trajectory, isn't it? which, I, you know, it does make a, a welcome change for Arsenal, really, doesn't it, after that? And you can see the same clubs like Manchester United, and we've spoken about this before, you know, teams, you know, you build a team, then you lose a team, then you build a team, and it happens in cycles. And Arsenal are, you know, they had their cycle, they had kind of the, the post venger kind of deterioration, and now the start of a new one. And mm. I think it's difficult to look at Arsenal. I mean, it, obviously, we went so long just associating Arsenal and the Champions League, you know, the two went hand-in-hand, hand really, for so many years, and... You know once you move on from that and you look at Arsenal for what they are and what they've been for the last three or four seasons, that is a it's a it is a, a young side and a positive side with a young positive manager that is improving every season. And it's difficult to begrudge Arsenal that kind of progress because that I think Arsenal, you know, apart from City and Liverpool, who obviously have sustained a, a ridiculous level for so many years now, I think Arsenal are probably almost the envy of of most other clubs in the league I would think you know the way that they have built aside from I mean I know it's a is a big club but the 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 squad that that you had two or three years ago was not the squad of a of a big club of a Premier League winning team of a Champions League final team it was not a squad that matched the reputation of the club and Hmm. the way that you have managed to turn that round with a you know a fresh-faced young manager and know a few inspired signings and you know very shrewd action in the transfer window, which you would expect to continue. Really, there's no reason why that would change this summer. It's Arsenal's got everything going for it at the moment, and it is a club that is quite clearly moving upwards. And it's, it's. I think next season's the big one. And you've probably, I don't know what you're thinking, but for me, next season's the big one. Now you finished fifth and you've missed out the Champions League by one point. There's only either, there can only be one goal next season now. And yeah. that kind of there's you know there's positives and negatives to that, but. Arsenal for next season now, it, it, it's got to be Champions League, I would think. Yeah,
1: definitely. And and I think, look, we, we, we were shrewd in the transfer market. We started signing younger players who cost a fair bit in transfer fees but were on lower wages. We've shifted a hell of a load of, of money off the wage bill, restructuring the kind of way in which the, the money is distributed across the squad. We've got the young players who are you know, improving. They, they. I mean, Smith Rowe, Saka and Martinelli all sort of got above 10 to 15 around their kind of goal contributions this season, which is brilliant. And you think if you add a, a goal scoring forward, um, you know, who... Look, I know Eddie Nketiah, I, I'm, I'm pleased that he signed uh, a new contract, but not as the main striker. I think we're, we're, we know that Arsenal are going to be in for a number nine. Um, and so when you add that, then you think, well, yeah, most good teams, you need a, a forward who's going to score you about at least 10 goals. And we we haven't had that for the last year or two um, for a, a number of reasons. And yeah, I agree with you that if we continue well in the transfer market this this summer, which is very clear what we need to do, a forward, goal scoring forward, um, another midfielder, some, some squad deepening, and... Um, and continue to develop these these young players, and I think, yeah, as you said, Champions League is is kind of next year. We, we is the time I think. And having said that, you know, there are six teams who are going for four places. Um, Manchester United, look, who knows where how their rebuild will be going next season? Whether they'll be ready to qualify for the Champions League? Spurs under Conte, if he if it continues to go his way, then they'll be there and around, as will Chelsea. It's like it's not cut and dry who's going to finish in the Champions League. It could be one of, you know, the, you know, any any of those six could could be finishing there. So as you said, I think Arsenal next season should be aiming to look win the Europa League. We're in the Europa League. I think we've we've fallen short in that competition a few times over the last few years. And we should be looking to again challenge for the top four. And it would be great if we could finish in it. But as you say, I'm, I'm really optimistic about the short term future and long term future because we've got the youngest side in the league and we've done it without a goal scoring forward. And we've finished one point behind Spurs, and all our, you know, the average age of the team is about 23. Um, and younger players get better. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to see their development next season and hopefully having some you know, some some high-quality, experienced additions to the squad who can sort of take the burden a bit off these young players who, you know, Saka was running to the ground by the end of the season. Smith Rowe played too much in the first half of the season, was unfit for the second half. Martinelli scored a few, you know, goals in clusters, but scored, I think, one goal in 16 appearances after Christmas. Um, you know, Erdegaard is a bit more experienced, but, you know, he needs to rest every now and again. We don't have that rotation yet, and you can't, I know it's quite boring to say, but you can't win anything with, with kids. And, and I think the level of intensity in the premier league and kind of fighting in European competition next season demands that we, you know, do what we need to do. So I'm, I'm excited and I hope that we get the business done and uh, yeah. Optimistic about, about the summer and, and next season for sure. Um, yeah.
0: Let's just wrap up then on the this section, just on the premier league. Um just for the, last, the last bit, really, on the movers and shakers at the end of the season. We've done the you know, the the happy, jolly bit of the, the champions and Champions League qualifiers. Um, then we turned to the bottom end of the table where there was also something to play for on the final day. And Leeds were the first side to start the final day in the bottom three and survive since Wigan way back when, probably 2012, 2013, something like that. So you don't see it very often where the relegation battle goes to the final day. But Leeds did manage to turn it around, um, sent Burnley down to the Championship. Both sides obviously made very, you know, huge calls with with their managers this season. Leeds letting Marcelo Bielsa go, Burnley obviously letting Sean Dyche go, and for all that Leeds managed to stay up, did did you know did either side make the right decision to sack the manager? Do you think?
1: I I think the Burnley one is a bit strange, to be honest. Um, you know, Sean Dyche, one of the most experienced managers in the league. I think ultimately you have to judge it on the way in which the season ended and Burnley got relegated. Would they've got relegated with Sean Dyche? Maybe, but maybe not. I mean, to be fair, um, Michael Jackson, <laughs> the uh, the assistant coach who stepped in for Sean Dyche, he did actually produce some good results, the kind of new manager bounce, um, which wasn't happening under Dyche, um, but he kind of maybe just backed Burnley to, to pull in together like they always have done under Dyche and kind of grind out those wins um so I think ultimately that was probably the wrong decision with Leeds I think Bielsa maybe the timing was wrong but I think Bielsa did have to go I think they probably should have done it sooner um because I don't think Jesse Marsh had enough time to to sort of do anything substantial I think he was handed over a kind of injury ravaged squad um you know and I think it's a great achievement whether it was kind of lucky or not I think I'm, I'm pleased that Leeds stayed up. Um, and yeah so I, I'd say ultimately Leeds have, have sort of got away with it and I think Burnley probably haven't but I'm, I'm pleased that Leeds stayed up and I'm interested to see what Jesse Marsh can do because he's got like a decent decent credentials as a coach I know he didn't do very well at Leipzig um, <laughs> But I'd be interested to see, sorry, that's my dog in the background. Um, I'd be interested to see what happens with Leeds. Um, but I was pleased that Burnley went down and kind of fed up with them. I know some people like them in the league, but I prefer Leeds for sure. Um, I don't know what you made of it.
0: Yeah, I think Leeds, for you know for all the huffing and puffing that Leeds put in to get into the Premier League again after so many years out, I think to only be here for two years and then slip out again would have been you know rather underwhelming really. Um, you'd expect them really to establish themselves more, you know, a club of their stature. And they do have the opportunity to do that now. I think a, most, a lot of sides that come up, I think before you, sides that we've seen come up and really establish, establish themselves, you know, your Southamptons, your Wolves, your Brightons, you know, they all have one particularly tricky season along the way, mm. so, uh, which really kicks them into gear. And maybe that was Leeds' one. And, you know, it'll kick them into gear now and then they'll start to solidify the place a little bit more. Uh, Aston Villa did it as well when they came up. Nearly went straight down, didn't they? And Now they've really solidified, and we'll, we'll come on to them mm-hmm. later. Um, so it you know it does provide that chance for Leeds, and it, I think a lot of sides you know unless you're one of the big six clubs who, who's you know Premier League status is secure before the balls even been kicked at the start of the season, I think every other side needs at least one season like the one that Leeds just had, which really you know kicks them into gear. Um, Burnley, on the other hand, I fear for them now. You see a lot of sides come down, come straight back up. You know Norwich are probably already favourites to come back up next season. Watford probably are up there. I'm not sure about Burnley. Maybe under diet, you give them a chance. But you look at some of the players they brought in this season. Weghorst, for example, came from Wolfsburg, came from you know a very secure Bundesliga career to getting relegated from the Premier League. He's already on his way out after six months. You look at some of the other quality in that squad. Is it Maxwell? Cornet will Maxwell be going. I think he's got a release clause in his contract. A- and then I, th- I think Nick Pope's linked with—is yeah. it Nottingham Forest? He's linked with link one of the sides that's just gone up. Mm. So I'm not sure what other quality there really is in that squad there. And is Burnley in a track? You know, if you're if you want to join, if you want to join a side that's likely to get promoted next season, I'd have thought Watford or Norwich would be a better bet. I'm not sure where where Burnley's pull is really this summer, to be honest. Um, I think they might struggle.
1: Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think who it will be interesting to see whether the burnley kind of style and and those players who have been there for i mean let's not forget that james tarkovsky will be leaving at the end of his contract in the summer as well so they they are facing and and they've got serious debts i think to pay off um so they're going to have to sell some serious assets and like you say what's kind of remaining when they sell these players who knows um i i'm not entirely interested because i don't really care too much for burnley but yeah i guess if I did, I would be kind of fearing for them in the sense that I don't think it's an automatic given that they come straight back up. Um, Leeds, on the other hand, look—they, I think the issue with under Bielsa was—is this their second season that's just finished in the Premier League? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, they did brilliantly last season, obviously, and then I think it's the classic kind of thing that happens under bielsa they the players just burn out, and they didn't have a deep enough squad. They got incredibly unlucky, or. You know, that's just the way it is with muscle injuries. I think with with Bielsa's intense style of playing, um, you know, Patrick Bamford's been incredibly unlucky this season, barely has played at all. Calvin Phillips has been injured a lot. Uh, they lost Stuart Dallas to a long-term injury um, and quite a lot of other players as well, like important centre-backs and stuff like that. And I'm really pleased that they've managed to avoid relegation because they've got those kind of marquee players, the likes of Calvin Phillips, who would have probably left if I mean he he might still leave but if they'd been relegated definitely would have left for a cut price deal um, Rafinha had I think a 17 million buyout clause if they got relegated now they, they're in a position to demand upwards to 60 million pounds for him same with Calvin Phillips so I'm hoping that they can really use this summer to kind of take stock and reset and deepen that squad because they were just you know they were fielding kids a lot of this season and I'd like to see Bamford come back and be fit and I, I look, I, I like Leeds and I like the team and uh, I hope that they can use this summer wisely and kind of appreciate the kind of uh, the the, the trapdoor that they've avoided. Um, definitely. So, but I agree with you, I'd say your point that, you know, sometimes if you can avoid relegation in that kind of difficult season, then you'd like to think that they can really use that as a springboard to kind of push on a bit and... Look, I think it would be very hard for them to, to keep some of those players, you know, Rafinha and Calvin Phillips, I think, especially this summer, but they've already made a few signings and at least they'll be able to command some significant transfer fees for those two guys and hopefully use it to reinvest.
0: Yeah, no, I agree totally. There's a side of a lot of potential there. So I kind of look forward to seeing their their action this summer, which we'll, we'll come on to later. Just finally, mm. just to wrap up the Premier League discussion, we've only got 90 seconds left on this this particular Zoom call. Um uh, Nottingham Forest come back up, and that was a, a long time coming, really. They flirted with League One more than they have with Premier League football in many seasons gone by. Uh, but they finally done it. Steve Cooper brought them from bottom of the league to uh, fourth, it was, wasn't it, before they came up through the Champions League playoff final. That's an exciting one, isn't it? Nottingham Forest back in the Premier League,
1: yeah, very excited. Um, I think obviously they've got the his- historic, uh, a historic uh, resonance. They've won the, you know, the I think old champions league. It was um, one of the original kind of big sides in, in the top flight. Um, they've been away for a long time. I think they've got some really good players. They've got a good following. They've got good grounds. They've got, you know, a good club song that they sing before the game. So I think that'd be a great addition to the premier league. And Steve Cooper um, has done a brilliant job. Um, I think hopefully he can be backed properly and, they can retain some of those players that they've got on loan. I think Jed Spence, uh, they're trying to sign on a permanent deal. James Garner, I think, from Manchester United as well. So, yeah, very exciting uh, to see Nottingham Forest back and uh, yeah, very, very very good for them.
0: Yeah, so exciting summer ahead for Nottingham Forest and it's always quite interesting to see what newly promoted sides do in the transfer market, what kind of pro- players they bring into, who they think will help consolidate the Premier League status. So that will be an interesting one to watch out for this summer. So I'm sure Fabrizio Romano is all over Nottingham Forest. Uh, let's move on now to the European finals. We had three uh, rather interesting finals, actually. Uh, conference League final, obviously, Roma and Mourinho is a talking point in and of itself. Uh, so we'll start with the Champions League. We talked about this a little bit before. We'll just go into a bit more detail on it. Um, Liverpool probably on the day of the better side. They came up against an inspired Thibaut Courtois. Uh, obviously, Real Madrid are an absolute goliath in the Champions League. It's not really a surprise in itself to see them win it. But on the day, perhaps Liverpool can feel a little bit unlucky. On you know, on another day, or maybe nine nine days out of ten, they would have won that final.
1: Yeah, I think. After, I mean, they kind of dominated that first half. I think Courtois made some exceptional saves, um, and then once uh, Real Madrid score, as they always have the capacity to do uh, with that threat that they pose up front. Um, I think Liverpool, after that, just just they really felt the the kind of long season in their legs, and they just weren't able to muster kind of that extra push, um, and. Yeah, it was a shame for Liverpool because I think I I couldn't help but feel for them. Having lost out on the Premier League title, I really thought they'd they'd beat Real Madrid, to be honest. I think everyone wrote Real Madrid off, which again, maybe we shouldn't have done. Um, And it was hard not to kind of uh, view the game in light of kind of what was going on before the game and after the game and the horrific and kind of disgraceful Uh, Organizational failures and and danger that Liverpool fans and and Madrid fans were put in um, with the lack of kind of concern by UEFA uh, to organize proceedings properly and and put fans and and people and human beings in danger, um, which which was kind of unfortunately the main takeaway from the from the Champions League final weekend. Um, But yeah, on the pitch, I think Liverpool were unlucky. I think on another day. Courtois doesn't pull out those brilliant saves. I think there was one in particular from Sadio Mane, which was which was great. Um, sort of tipped a low low shot onto the post um, or just beyond the post. Um, but yeah, look, Real Madrid's as they have done throughout the Champions League uh, campaign this season, kind of ride it out, strike, and then hold on. And um, look, we can't say that their manager or those some of those players aren't experienced in winning the Champions League. Well, so. Well. Yeah, um, well well, well done to Real Madrid, absolutely. I think we we should definitely focus on them as much as Liverpool kind of falling short.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the many, many players in that squad. It's, it's, it's a squad that remains rather consistent, really, over the last kind of six, seven, eight years in which they've won those five Champions Leagues. So there's, I don't know, 10, 11 players, I think, who, who've who been consistently in that team and have got, now got five Champions Leagues to the name. But incredibly, it's still not as many as Carlo Ancelotti's mustard. I think. He's got... A, well, he's got six European titles now, I believe, um, and which is you know a far cry from the dark days of his career that he spent at Goodison Park. That was <laughs> quite some turnaround, really, to end up winning the, you know, his sixth major European honour with was Real Madrid.
1: Yeah, um, I think it was the second with Real Madrid, and then he obviously won a couple with AC Milan, and then he won a couple as a player as well. Um, But yeah, very, very crazy how, I mean, that season that Real Madrid had, uh, they won the La Liga. I know there maybe wasn't the kind of competition that you'd expect from Barcelona Um, and then won the Champions League after an incredible run of games um, that started with PSG when Benzema scored a hat-trick. And then I think he scored another hat-trick against Chelsea and then he scored again against uh, Manchester City, as we mentioned before, and then they've beaten Liverpool. So you can't say they don't deserve it. They've beaten the best teams in the world um, on the way to winning it. And yeah, I mean, just you have to take your hats off to them. Um, And look, it it was even with the whole kind of uh, Kylian Mbappe saga um, coming to a head just before that weekend and it transpired that he's staying at PSG and Real Madrid kind of looked a bit embarrassed and uh, maybe it would have been if they'd lost that game, then it would have been like oh you know and now Mbappe is not coming where next Real Madrid and they've shown that you know they are still very much alive and kicking with or without you know the superstar signings that they kind of crave. So yeah, I mean, kind of exceptional to see them do it. Having said that, you know they've got an incredible amount of sp- experience and, and talent still. So maybe we should have been. less less quick to write them off, um, for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on now because they do have some opposition, of course, in the the very prestigious European Super Cup, which will be taking place in July or August this year. And obviously we wouldn't usually talk in so much detail about the Europa League final. Obviously Rangers were on the losing side this year, which is a talking point in itself that we've got a Scottish side there. Also, it was 20 minutes down the road from me, uh, the winning side, so we went to Frankfurt to watch the final, and that was uh, quite a surreal experience, absolutely mental. On the main, the main pub street in Frankfurt, they had uh, screens up everywhere. You couldn't move for TV screens. It was absolutely crazy. And then wow. we winning it on penalties, and the whole street was gridlocked. People out in the cars, you know, people who definitely drunk an awful lot watching the game were out in the cars, you know, honking the horns, waving flags, chanting, cheering. It was It was a surreal, surreal experience. Um, being there, I was actually there watching my, my, poor, my poor mate. He's a Rangers fan. Had oh, no, down, had to keep his head down for the duration. Yeah, and, um, he ran to the train station when penalties ended, so they didn't have to watch all the Frankfurt celebrations.
1: Yeah, I'm not, not surprised
0: by himself, slightly depressed. Um, that was an incredible experience. Very good game, as well, actually. Um, quite cagey, but a lot of chances. Um, yeah. certainly, second half, first half wasn't brilliant. Mm. Um, but no, that was a uh, uh, one of the more memorable Europa League finals for me, anyway. Uh, I actually because I saw, I mean, I saw Frankfurt. Early, I mean, they played away against Mainz on the final day of the season, which was only that was a Saturday, and the, the the Europa League final was the Wednesday. And they were they were poor. They were really poor. And I think they had nine of the same start in eleven. Like they're not they're not they're not a top side by any means. And I mean, the fact that they only scraped by Rangers on penalties is maybe testament to that. But mm. they've done a very good job to drag a, a side that finished in the bottom half of the Bundesliga to you know being one of the seeded teams in next season's champions league it's uh, yeah. a remarkable turnaround um you know in credit to them and they've obviously got champions league football for it and they like i say they avoid all the all the top teams in the group stage as well so
1: i think, I think also you know i was reading about frankfurt and you know the kind of their pedigree and i think the fact that i think their record signings something like Fifteen million euros or something like that, and it just shows how brilliant it is that a team like that can still go that far in, in a European competition. And uh, yeah, I mean, they knocked out they knocked out Barcelona, for example, who were probably favourites. Um, and I forget was that the semi final. I think they knocked Barcelona yeah, out yeah. of yeah. Yeah, so you know, completely deserved. And and Rangers, look, it would have been course, great I for know. them, um, but it also was great for Frankfurt. So again you've got to say, hats off. And uh, even though they there wasn't necessarily a clear underdog in the final, I think Frankfurt were probably un, massive underdogs going into this kind of European competition, going into that Barcelona game. So the fact that they've kind of rather convincingly won it, and I know it went to penalties, but it seems like so many games go to penalties these days in finals. Um Got to say, well done to Frankfurt. Absolutely.
0: Well, both sides helped each other out, didn't they? I mean, Rangers obviously saw off Dortmund and... Leipzig, Frankfurt, saw off well. West Ham were probably probably a better side than Frankfurt. You've got to say overall. Also beat Barcelona, obviously most impressively. So I think both teams helped each other get an easier game in the final. Um, but it, you know, it was it made it all the more interesting because neither team is a is a you know a big European force at all, really. Which made it yeah, all yeah of course.
1: Yeah, I was right. So it was Barcelona and quarters, wasn't it? And then it was West Ham and semis. I mean, yeah. very, very impressive to to knock those two out. And likewise with Rangers. Um, but yeah, as you say, I think it was it was winner takes all, and and Frankfurt just had enough in the end. I mean, it was Aaron Ramsey, unfortunately, former Arsenal man, who missed uh, an important penalty, um, having been brought on I think five minutes before. I, I really dislike that kind of you know, pressure, and, and
0: that doesn't work now.
1: Yeah, it just it isn't a thing. Um, So, uh, I mean, commiserations to Rangers, but I think to to go on that run was brilliant for them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Arsenal and uh, Manchester United will be in the Europa League next year, so uh, we'll see. I I think, I mean, I would definitely, as an Arsenal fan, be expecting to to get far in that competition. So we can't write it off and kind of turn our noses up at it because it's going to become more and more kind of uh, relevant, I think, for a lot of English clubs, especially.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's actually even got a, a competition below it now. It's not kind of the scrapyard for, for European teams now. There is a conference league below it, which actually, in fairness, transpired, produced a pretty decent final and a, a pretty popular winner. Mourinho winning silverware again with Roma. Um, I think there's you've always got to take satisfaction for Mourinho winning something, especially now he's kind of moved away from England and he's kind of playing his trade elsewhere. Um, yeah. It also mean that Tottenham is now the only side that he's managed and not won silverware with, which I'm sure is particularly amusing to you. Um, but he's, he's still got it. He's still got it. And he's linked with the, uh, as I think we, we may move on or we could deal with it now, is actually linked with the, the PSG job as well. You know, he's still alive and kicking.
1: Yeah, I think look, they, they had a decent. Serie A season. I think they ultimately, I think they finished fifth or sixth in the end. So it was, it was slightly underwhelming. But I was looking at the Serie A recently, and you know they've got some some top sides uh, kind of fighting it out for those top six or seven places. I think you know the quality then drops off aside from those teams. Um, but yeah, I think great for him and for Roma especially to win win a win a trophy after so long. And um, I think he's 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 doing well there um I'm not sure whether he's actually going to entertain uh the PSG kind of rumors I read recently that you know whilst there might be interest there from PSG I, I think he's not really wanting to leave Roma I think he's quite enjoying himself there and the kind of players that he has and the and the kind of status that he holds um but yeah I think well done to I like Roma as a as an old kind of traditional European club and uh even though I wanted final to win because uh, an Arsenal loney Reese Nelson was playing for them, I think you can't uh, you can't turn your nose up at it. And you know, as a team, kind of filled with with Premier League misfits, um, you know, Mourinho doesn't quite qualify for that. But you have know, got Chris Smalling who put in a brilliant performance, uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan, um, Tammy Abraham, who really looks like he's taken on strides this season. I think he looks great, and uh, you know. Yeah, I'm pleased for Roma big time.
0: Yeah, and Tammy Abraham as well you'd like to think that he's playing his way into contention for the for the World Cup. I think it was mm. baffling against Hungary to see him stay on the bench at 1-0 down and bringing on... uh Calvin Phillips was brought on wasn't he I think at 1-0 down when Tammy Abraham's sitting on the bench. So you know I hope the fact that he's he's playing his football somewhere other than England doesn't kind of put him out of the picture and kind of you know leave him to be forgotten about because he's He's come alive and you know Mourinho has that in him. Mourinho loves a, a big striker up front who he can play around. You know, we've seen it with Drog was obviously one example. We've seen it elsewhere, clubs he's been at. He loves a big target man up front, or not, not necessarily target man, but he loves a you know a big man up front who can bully bully defenders, and that's what he's kind of crafting Tammy Abraham into. So I hope that he doesn't get cast aside just the fact that he's playing his football outside of England. Um, because he's really come alive over there
1: yeah he should be the clear second choice back up to Harry Kane um, I think he offers a lot more as well um, I was kind of watching him hadn't watched loads of him this season I watched a kind of YouTube video of, of his best bits and you know the way that he was running the channels and kind of his, his skill set and, and the way he'd take players on it's a lot more well-rounded I think actually the kind of target man, number nine position, he actually interprets very differently away from that kind of traditional sense. Um, but I was very pleased for him, for him to go to Roma and, and I think finish Roma's top scorer and and you know he's their highest scoring forward for a while now. Um, in the same way that I saw, you know, love uh Fikai Tomori going to to AC Milan and, and becoming a really integral part of their title winning side. It's great to see these young English players who maybe can't quite cut it straight away at their at their traditional clubs. In this case, Chelsea, and then showing that they can do it elsewhere, away from the kind of spotlight and uh, the media attention. And and uh, yeah, it's it's great to see for 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 kind of pedigree of of the Serie A, as well as um, you know seeing some some English players and and stuff representing and and um, showing that they can do it away from England. It's great.
0: Yeah, the uh, Germany manager, Hansi Flick, in his interview yesterday before the, the Nations League game against England, I think he said that England could make three, could feel three very strong international sides, uh, you know, the, the, in the strength and depth that we've got. And it obviously give, um Southgate some headaches. Another point I saw, interestingly, was, obviously, Harry Maguire continues to perform reasonably well for England, certainly compared to domestically. But if he gets cast aside by by Eric Ten Hag in the following season, he's not getting game time, can... Can Gareth Southgate justify continuing to pick his favorite play, his personal favorite players, even if they're not playing for for the domestic team? And I thought that was an interesting little question that he might have to face come come the World Cup in Qatar. And that do, does bring us also onto you know kind of the the next segment of this this episode, you know, transfers, manager changes, etc. And we have started our our plan here with um, Manchester United and the clear up mm. potentially face. And, you know, I said Vander Bakes short of game time. That's perhaps almost like a new signing coming in. Rumours of, you know, Frankie de Jong, Darwin Nunez, Anthony Timber, I think is the name of the Ajax centre back. We couldn't quite remember. And then, you know, the departures Pogba, Cavani, Mata, Lingard, Matic. Of all the clubs that Fabrizio Romano will be uh, reporting on this this summer, United are going to be right up there. It's going to be, I think, a very, very different looking squad come the start of the season. And, you know, it does, it does call into question the futures of players like Harry Maguire. You know, his price tag, he's been there long enough now that he can't, It's he, a new manager as well. You know, he can't carry on getting in the starting lineup line just based on his price tag. You know, this is where, you know, Ten Hag's got, he's coming in, he's got, a, he's taken a, a punt coming to United in a lot of ways. He's got to come in and make his impression and make the tough decisions. And Harry Maguire might be one of the players that suffers you know, Ronaldo might be one to play. What be one of the players that suffers? You know, I think it's going to be a very, very, very different looking United squad, and there might be some even the players that stay and are still there next summer, next season could well be casualties of this new kind of regime.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think you know, um, I mean, the main thing that I think Ten Hag will do, and and I know it's a very different situation to Arsenal, but you can draw some similarities as you know he is ultimately renowned for his coaching ability Ten Hag and I think he will do well to kind of coach the players that he has at his disposal and I know a lot of them will probably I mean a lot of them have left already but you know he he has plenty of players that are going to stay on board and and maybe they won't be the long-term options but I'd like to think that Harry Maguire in a well-coached system will do a decent job um, you know he's already been speaking about Cristiano Ronaldo and how he features in his plans so I think already with the kind of squad churn that's happening with with players leaving on freeze, uh, the names that you mentioned there, I think, you know, this this kind of squad rebuild is going to take time and so there will be some players who will be interesting to see whether they respond to a, a high level of coaching. I mean, I'm looking through their squad right now, you know, you've got Dean Henderson um, and David De Gea, I think maybe they stay the same, maybe Dean Henderson goes, I'm not sure. Um, Lindelof, buy, I think his contracts? No, it doesn't expire, but I'm, I'm sure that he'll be maybe deem surplus to requirements. Phil Jones, I think, is one of the names that we didn't mention who will be leaving. I mean, you've got Lindelof, Maguire, Varane, and then they'll be looking to sign another centre-back, probably from Ajax, the name that you mentioned. Diogo Dallo, Luke Shaw, Tellez. Wambasaka, bissaka I think, has been linked with an exit. Yeah, yes. Williams, Tuanzebi, are probably young players, maybe go out on loan. Pogba's gone, Mata will go. Lingard will go. Pereira will go. Ahmad Diallo signed for a lot of money it's hard to see where he maybe fits in maybe he can stick around for a bit and, and get some good coaching Fred Fernandez, Palistri as well a lot of money young signing will he stick around or is he one for the future Matic gone I think he's going to Roma actually to join Mourinho yeah, yeah, yeah. Van der Beek probably come back and play McTominay uh, James Garner who was played very well for Nottingham Forest will he go out on loan again then you've got Ronaldo Martial probably goes Rashford I think will come back in Greenwood probably won't play for United again. Uh, Cavani gone. Sancho, you'd like to think, will be coached well. Alanga, he's around. So it's, you know there's a lot of players there who you'd say in an ideal world maybe wouldn't be part of the Manchester United squad, but they will be. And I'd like to see them respond to, a, as you say, a new implementation of kind of discipline and coaching and, and really rediscovering the kind of just the basics at Manchester United and, and really sort out that toxic dressing room.
0: Well, interestingly, what you've just done there, running through that squad, is exactly what Ralph Rangnick did, which led to him having to depart the club a couple of years prematurely. Uh, which is what, what a mess, absolute farce, really. He came in, said from uh, you know a position of you know serious kind of um, authority, really, as the interim manager of Manchester United, that every single position on the pitch, apart from goalkeeper, needed improving, and then was given the boot. Uh, but, you know, someone had to say it. Um, he was the man who said it and is no longer at Manchester United. Just yeah. of it.
1: It's crazy because, you know, I remember talking to you on this show and we were saying that it's a really promising thing for Ranić to be coming into United and be giving that level of authority. Clearly, he wasn't given that level of authority. Maybe being the manager kind of burned his bridges in the way that he spoke about the club. He also took on the Austria job, I think, when he was still technically employed, it just all seemed like a bit of a mess um, and it hasn't panned out the way that you'd like to think. Um, so I think maybe better to cut ties, clearly, because um, I don't think he was contributing in a positive way to the club. But maybe the club didn't let him, who knows?
0: I think looking back in hindsight, I think the writing was maybe on the wall. I think you know the news about him moving to, you know inheriting the Austrian national team job and then the fact that he wouldn't be remaining on as, as a consultant in a consultancy role, I think maybe had been maybe unofficially or officially agreed sometime in the past. You know, when he started becoming a lot more vocal about how the squad needed improving, maybe he he wasn't bound then by you know the knowledge that he'd be sticking at the club, and he's a little bit more free to speak his mind. I don't know. Maybe the writing was already on the wall. Maybe he, he felt he could he could be a little bit more honest. I don't know. But I, all in all, I think as. as you know, the, the footballing messiah he was meant to be, you know, he, he's quite clearly damaged that reputation. Uh, but I think ultimately, I, I wouldn't put it down as a, as a failure necessarily, really, on his part. I think would we have, would United have qualified for the Champions League under Solskjaer? No. Would they have qualified for the Europa League? Perhaps, probably. I think if
1: that, I, again, hindsight, but I think if they had appointed a solid interim, experienced coach, um, who had proven their level, I don't know which names were being floated around at that time but there were definitely a few and I think Ranić was the kind of left field kind of looking to the future appointment but clearly that's been disastrous and wow. I think if they had got a manager in who could maybe had a better hold of the dressing room because the dressing room as we found out from you know reports and stuff imploded and uh, there was no way that Ranić stood a chance and so I think yeah, bad appointment in the end. But yeah, it, it's hard to judge Radnik because also like he's not a manager. Um, and why was he given the job? Maybe, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a bit strange, a very weird one. And I think yeah. maybe, yeah, go on.
0: You know, I think what what I would say is he he was brought in on a short-term appointment. He's clearly not a yes man. He's not going to pander to try and get the job long-term. I think yeah. he could come in regardless of what went on behind the scenes. And maybe they'd already agreed that he'd be moving on in the summer anyway. He wasn't going to come in and you know and bow down and say all the right things in front of the media. He came in. He was blunt. He was honest. He said what everyone wanted to hear. Really, that you know this is a squad that is poor, that isn't living up to expectations, that needs improving. And someone's been there and sat there as the Manchester, as the manager of Manchester United and said that. And someone needed to. Um, so he he wasn't going to do big things. You could say maybe Conte could have, but Conte would have been the same. Conte would have come in and said how poor the squad was. But he'd have, been a full, he'd have been a permanent manager, and then that would have left an even an even worse taste in the mouth. Really, I think. But we've had someone. He's come in. He said his piece. He's been sent away again, and they've got a, a, you know a new manager in who can, you know, who has got you know the, he will be backed because it has you know it's out there now that the squad isn't good enough. You know they brought in a man who's you know, foot, he, you know He might not be the best manager in the world, but he's he knows his football, and he said it's a squad that needs improving, and you know with with some real kind of authority behind it. Um, so I think he's done his bit, Rangnick. I think, you know, I don't think we could really expect much more of him than that, really, in all honesty. Um, so I wouldn't say he he's failed as such. I think in any, you know, he may on a personal level look back at his time at Manchester United and see it as a failure. But I think ultimately, I think it's a good thing for the club. He's come in, there's been too many managers now who haven't got results to, to be able to pin it on the manager. You know, I think it goes yeah. more than anything that it's the players, you know. Ram yeah. not actually won any fewer trophies than Solskjaer did. He's not won. He's not been that much less successful than Mourinho was in his final couple of seasons at the club. You know, the fact that he didn't win anything in itself is not a failure. Failure, but what he's done is yeah. he, he's quite clearly the players that need changing or need someone to come in and give the red a wobble. Um, and I
1: think also just not the players, but also you know, traditional. I think Manchester United is a club of the past in terms of you know. Coaching methods and and kind of uh, you know if you look at Liverpool and City and the kind of incredible roster of staff that they have in specialising for certain things and and making gains and to coaching techniques and all this stuff and United just haven't had any of that and so that is also another thing that that, need, that it requires some serious investment and and kind of regeneration um, that hopefully will be done under Ten Hag who again has proven his worth at Ajax and I think would have taken the job with certain promises and uh, I just think on the Ranyak thing I think maybe it's again a, a kind of damning indictment on on uh, on United and kind of the scale of the club because yeah. Ranić would have probably stuck around definitely if he had received you know the kind of right signals and clearly he's again it's hard to say whether he's like the guy and whether his reputation was worthy of kind of you know, this kind of ominous kind of background figure of founding certain styles of football. And, you know, he built all of these German clubs from the ground and and maybe he wasn't the guy, but, you know, it, again, it's kind of like United, it's not a kind of coach or manager problem. It's a kind of systemic, you know, ingrained in the uh, the kind of essence of the club uh, club issue and that comes with the players and staff and and just everything around the club the culture um, so look that's that's hopefully that will restart um, with Ten Hag's arrival and it's going to take time I think I'll be interested to see how he goes about it and the kind of assessing the phases of his development with that with the club um, I'm excited I'm sure you are too probably I mean he's you
0: look at the links that that he has and we'll, we'll come on, I think we've spoken about it before, links that certain managers have to certain types of players. And you look at the names that we mentioned when we started this segment, you know, Frankie de Jong was a player of his at Ajax. You know, there's several other players there, Darwin Nunez, Anthony, Jurian um, Timber. You know, he's got, he, he, he can attract, you know, the cream of kind of Dutch players. And you know, he's had some fantastic players with him in the past that Ajax have kind of moved on, maybe interested in returning, you know, some of the players who he's, many of those players who just in there are, are current Ajax players and, you know, aren't going to turn down a move to Manchester United, especially if they're working with this manager who they've succeeded with in the past. You know, he has got a reputation and he has got a pull, even if he's not, a, you know, he's not yet a Klopp or a Guardiola or mm. a Conte. He has got, he is attractive to a certain type of player, namely much mm. players. <laughs> it seems above all else, but it's, he has got some kind of pull and, Obviously, Champions League is a factor. You're probably not going to bring Frankie de Jong in from Barcelona without Champions League football. But but, he's he's obviously on his way out of Barcelona in the next few months, couple of transfer windows. And United have put themselves in the frame for players of that kind of quality, which the players Mm. need to be signing.
1: I think on on de Jong, the only caveat I'd add to that is that I think Barcelona are keen to sell because he can generate a good amount of money. But he's said that he doesn't really want to leave. And I think you want to sign players who want to come to United. Yeah, I think De Jong would so De Jong would command a, a transfer fee of around, I think, 90 million euros. They want to get the money that they paid for him back. He's on something like 300 grand a week. I don't think that's what United should be doing straight away. But I yeah, I, I like the, the kind of shift of being linked with players who are a bit younger, um, who the managers maybe worked with before who fit his style of play. I think that was one thing that Ranić really drove home, the need to recruit around a certain style of play um, yeah. and kind of longer term planning. And hopefully that can start happening at United starting this summer. And I'm sure it will, but it won't be easy.
0: No, but I mean, that is, that's is—that's a nice way of putting it. I think that you kind of alluded to there, you know, the, f- the fact that all these players happen to be young and Dutch, you know, is kind of a coincidence, really. I think that, the main point is that they're all they are all 10 hog players. They have all been 10 hog players. They all fit the 10 Hag style. And you look at players like, I'm not sure what really, you know, Rafael Varan and you know Jade Sancho have in common, really, in terms of styles they've played in the past. I mean, they play very different positions, but they're not, they don't come from clubs that have inherently similar footballing cultures, footballing styles. And you can say that for the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight transfer windows, really. The players united have been have brought in, they've brought in names from big clubs, for big sums, which in isolation are good signings, but we've seen that you can't put them together and necessarily form a good team. And I think what what we do have with Ten Hag is that there is a clear kind of profile of players that he wants to bring in. Um, you know, the fact that they happen to be players that he's managed before clearly shows that you can get a tune out of them. Um, so no, I think it, it shows that United are... Moving, you know, in the right direction. And you look at the list of players that have gone Pogba, Cavani, Mata, Lingard, Matic, all the huge all five, amounts of money, all five of them as well, I believe came into the first team, under different managers, you know, Mata was under, under David Moyes, Cavani was under Solskjaer, Pogba, I think was under Mourinho, Matic as well, actually was under Mourinho, Lingard was under Louis van Gaal, you know, so many different players from so many different areas have been, have been just, you know, wiped out of the squad and bringing in fresh faces, all who seemingly seem to fit a similar profile, which I think can only be of benefit.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, look, just on those, I know you're losing all those players for free, but the, the wages and the money that they'll be on, and I know United still have some significant earners on their on their wage bill who will stick around, but that's essential to cut, cut those guys off and uh, start looking to the future. And just thinking about it, when you were saying it, I'm really excited to see Jaden Sancho properly next season at under 10 Hag. Hopefully he revitalizes Marcus Rashford as well. I think you you know, alongside a Cristiano Ronaldo, who will have the team coach towards his strengths, hopefully. I think it's a very exciting prospect. Um, there's still stuff there with some high quality additions and some good coaching. Um, but that's what you need to do now. You need to focus on, you know, your your strong players and and not sign not make poor decisions in the transfer market, but look, we'll, we'll see what happens with United. And uh, look, uh, I think the lowest has already been, you'd like to think. I mean, maybe there'll be more suffering to come. I'm sure there will be, but it's part of the process now. And I think everyone needs to kind of get on board with that.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. So I think we'll move at this point onto Arsenal as well, because I'm sure you're very keen to talk about that while we're on the subject of trip player mm. ins and outs. And Arsenal, also aside from United, looks to be the club where there'll be a lot going on this summer. that's already gone. Saliba's yeah. already back. Said he's going to be fighting for a place in the. He's not played yet, has he, for Arsenal? I don't think.
1: He's played in a pre season game. That's it. We've signed yeah. him. For, we've had him for nearly three years, It's kind so of he's, crazy. He's back on
0: the scene. He's fighting. You talk about Enketia signing a new deal. You, you alluded to that before. Reese Nelson was on loan at Feyenoord. Several young players coming back. And then also, even you know, most excitingly, there a lot really of the the transfer links. Players like Gabriel Jesus, Yuri Tielemans, Alexander Zinchenko, three top top signings. They would be for you know for a club like Arsenal at the level you're at. That would really take the squad on. You know, give it a whole new dimension. So it's an exciting few prospects there.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, look, last summer was very exciting for a different reason. We 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 spent a fair a lot of mo- a fair bit of money, but on strengthening the kind of uh, key positions in the squad with some young players. This summer looks like it's going to be a bit of that uh, finding some squad players of of you know that are young and can develop, but then also signing some key players who are experienced, Premier League proven in key positions, um, a centre forward, i.e., Gabriel Jesus. Um, perhaps another forward as well. If Nicola Pepe leaves, I mean, there's, there's still so much uncertainty around so many of the players in the squad. Um, but yeah, very exciting to, to kind of, again, just re get back to the transfer window and, and continue this remolding of the squad. Um, because there's going to be plenty of outgoings, you know, but Leno is probably going to go Hector Bellerin still around. He's probably going to go, um, You've got Nicola Pepe is probably going to go. Lacazette's gone already. Um, you know we had other loan players like Lucas Torreira. Uh, what's going to happen to Reese Nelson? uh, Guendouzi's joining Marseille on a permanent deal. Uh, you've got Saliba coming back. Who's probably going to reintegrate? Um, yeah. So it's it's there's a lot still to go on um, in terms of outgoings and incomings. Um, and I think the lack of European market. I think you know the the fees that these European clubs can afford apart from the the big European sides are next to nothing. Um, so you'd be looking to try and sell some of these players to the Premier League sides, but it's a difficult market to navigate still. Um, but yeah, it's exciting in the same way that, you know, we've started the process of our kind of squad rebuild and this is another key summer, especially given the fact that in January we signed no one and we let go or paid people to leave Aubameyang, loaned out Maitland-Niles, who will also be coming back. Um, Paid, you know, Kalas and to leave, gave Caleb Chambers away. Uh, Pablo Marie went out on loan. He'll also be coming back. So there's a lot of churn, a lot of players coming in and out, a lot of uncertain futures, a lot of players who need to come in and need to leave. So it's going to be another busy, busy summer for Arsenal for sure. Um, but I'm excited um, for those kind of those significant uh, additions who are ready to come into that first eleven and make a difference.
0: I mean, the problem obviously is you bring all these players in, fresh faces, uh, potentially Jesus Tielemans, Zinchenko, players coming back in from low, coming back in from the loans that will improve the squad. But the problem is that Arsenal won't be the only squad that improving. You know, you've got to keep up with the other sides around who will mm. also be improving. We've spoken about United, who would expect so, but perhaps no, no, no one more so than Man City. Uh, already been very active bringing in Alvarez and the small matter of Erling Haaland. Uh, Calvin Phillips has been, uh, you know, commonly linked. And then you, 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 when we were, when we were, you know, planning and you you brought up Couturella as well from Brighton, who's been yeah. linked as well as yet another fullback who might be coming through the door. Jesus and Sterling may be leaving, Zinchenko as well, Fernandinho retiring. But you know, Man City aren't resting on their laurels. They've Won the Premier League again for the fourth season out of five. Again, perhaps could have gone further in the Champions League. We'll be disappointed not to have won the FA Cup, or the League Cup, but. No, this season, you know, perhaps more than any other in recent seasons, they 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 really look to be taking that squad to another level yet again, which, you know, for all United and Arsenal may want to try, you know, are the you know, the the summit of the Premier League seems to be just moving further and further out of reach with some of these signings.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, Arsenal and United and other teams have got to focus on themselves because City are in a different league. They'll continue to strengthen and that's just what they're going to do. And so there's no point trying to compete necessarily. You've just got to trust in your own business and your, your process and hope that you can make as much ground up as possible. But I think, look, City have shown that they can, they, they didn't sign a forward last summer um, or this time Jack Grealish, obviously, but the plan was to play him in midfield. They didn't sign Harry Kane. and I think they feel rather pleased that they held off on that deal and now have signed Haaland. Um, they've shown that they can win the league without that sort of number nine player. Um, and I think Haaland will obviously take them to a the next level in the Premier League. There will be some style adjustments, of course, for their players and for Haaland, but I think he's a real kind of force for them in the Champions League to give them something different, something that they don't have. Um, Alvarez looks a really good player as well. Um, I don't know quite what their plan is for them, him, but I think he's he's coming back for their pre-season because they want to have a real good look at him. Um, he scored six goals in, uh, the other day in one game, Um So, again, probably an astute signing from them. And I'm sure they'll strengthen in those other areas in midfield to replace Fernandinho. And I think they want another fullback as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, they'll go from strength to strength. And I think in Liverpool's case, I think they'll probably be looking over their shoulder and being like, wow, we probably need to continue strengthening as well. I know they strengthened with Luis Diaz in, in January, but... Um, yeah, there are some some decisions to be made at Liverpool too. But the level of these top teams is is crazy, and the fact that they'll continue to to strive for further reinforcement and strengthening is, uh, I guess, to be expected.
0: Yeah, it does look to be a far more difficult summer for Liverpool, really. With Mane, the field buying a fielding fielding bids for him now. I think, like you said, twenty five million pound opening bid was rejected. Um, he's only got one year left in his contract as well, which obviously means that Liverpool, you know, they're either cashing on him now or losing free next summer. And Salah and Firmino are also in, in similar positions. You know, Liverpool have the San Diego Jodz, perhaps not, not the most expected of signings. He was slightly left field, maybe. Luis Diaz as well, perhaps, you know, kind of brought him in from Portugal and he did well to hit the ground running. They brought, they've done very well to bring in signings and, you know, have them hit the ground running from from clubs that perhaps you maybe wouldn't expect, um, so you, I'm sure they've got other others in the in in the pipeline. But it does look to be while Liverpool are signing players like City are signing players like Haaland and Alvarez. You know Liverpool are losing their top players, and it's not as yet clear that they've got the replacements in the in in the pipeline. So it's going to be interesting to see whether that gap between Liverpool and City does actually widen after a couple of years of it narrowing quite considerably
1: Yeah I think look in an ideal world they'd, they'd keep Mane and sign him to a new deal but I think he's quite keen to leave um, so then it comes a question of who do you replace him with also how much do you let him go for um, I think they want something like 50 million for him which I don't think is unreasonable but obviously Bayern Munich are kind of wanting to take advantage of his contract situation which is kind of the exact position they're in with Robert Lewandowski um, but yeah they they ideally they wouldn't be having to replace Mane but Look, Mane, Salah and Firmino all in the final years of their deal. So they've they've got they've got work cut out for them in that regard, definitely. Indeed,
0: yes. Yeah. So it proves to be a, a crucial transfer window for Liverpool as well. Um, for them to kick on from, you know, try and convert second in the Premier League, Champions League runners up, won the two other domestic cup competitions, try and improve on that next season is going to be a mammoth task. And they may have to lose a couple of players before they can before they bring more in. So that's going to be one to watch out for. Uh, there's already been a couple of other active Premier League clubs in the uh, transfer window. Chelsea, it's more on the departures, obviously with all the uh, you know ownership takeover going through and they weren't able to offer contracts to players whose contracts were expiring, kind of paved the way for Rudiger to leave. Um, Alonso Christensen as Peliqueta also potentially. Lukaku perhaps inevitably... Um, looks to be on his way out. Um, and that Chelsea side, the, these under two, Tuchel seem to have a brief resurgence, obviously won the Champions League, but they seem to be falling away from the top two again. Just when it just was when it looked like we had a you know a real top three in the Premier League, chelsea kind of dropped away rather quickly this season. And it looks like there's gonna be a whole host of departures. Maybe Todd Burley, the new owner, will want to make a good impression and pump a load of money in on new players, but that's a squad that looks to be, it'll be, it'll be thinning out a lot this summer.
1: Yeah, I think losing someone like Rudiger is a massive blow for, uh, for Chelsea. Um, and the fact they're losing Christensen as well, two centre-backs kind of in their prime for free. Um, you can extend that back to losing Tamori. I know they've got a fee, but wouldn't they like to have him uh, around at the moment? And then losing experienced full-backs as well. So that they, they they've got a, Big summer ahead um they've got some you know they've got lukaku they've got players like werner zh uh, pulisic all open to thinking about their futures as well according to reports so there's a lot of uncertainty for a lot of their players um they've also got to you know clearly replace rudiger and christensen they've got to sign i think another central midfielder at least because i think kante jorginho are both entering their final years of their contracts now they're both over what you know past 30 years old now uh both there have been rumors of you know manchester united being interested in kante um uh, Jorginho maybe going back to, to italy as well so their squad's kind of in a state of flux and i think that's a reflection of kind of the state of flux that the club's been in under this kind of takeover period um but yeah they they from a position of such strength last summer um Now it looks like they're kind of back to square one um, in terms of having to strengthen and, uh, you know, adjust to certain departures and and all the rest of it. So, yeah, an interesting summer for Chelsea. Um, But they, you know, I'm not sure. it would be interesting to see how they respond and where they're at next season because, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, as I said. Yeah, I mean, despite the multi-billion
0: pound takeover, wasn't it? It was four billion... 4.25 Four point two five billion, yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, so, I mean, they're certainly not short of money; that's not going to be an issue. But you do wonder if they may have a have to take a little bit of pain first, um, despite that huge cash injection. Um, we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, no such problems at Aston Villa with Steven Gerrard. They've been very active already. Coutinho has become a permanent deal, uh, perhaps not not particularly surprising, but certainly for a club like Aston Villa, is a massive coup. Um, Camara in from Marseille Diego Carlos also in from Sevilla is a real statement from intent statement of intent and you know there's been you know mixed kind of feeling about how Gerard's adapted to the Premier League has he really done as well as everyone thinks he has he's not really got anywhere to hide next season now with um, the quality of players that Villa are bringing in they, they've, they are really backing him there's, you know, there's no doubt about that Steven Gerrard's their man and they're bringing players in
1: for him um, so it will be interesting to see kind of what he does with that Villa squad next season yeah, I mean look, they're building a squad, which I think is definitely capable. Like they're they're readying themselves for European competition, I think. Like they've got some really strong players in in you know a variety of positions. They've got a good depth, uh, they've got a good blend of experience and youth. Um so th- yeah, they they can't really afford to underperform next season. Um, they should be really, I think those kind of signings are being like right, top 10 finish guaranteed, looking to have a run in the cups and push on for that Europa Conference League place, um, which is what their signings would suggest. You know, signing Felipe Coutinho, Diego Carlos from Sevilla, uh, Boubacar Camaro from a free from Marseille. All very exciting signings. They've got Oli Watkins, uh, Danny Ings, good goal-scoring forwards. Um, Jacob Ramsey, very exciting, promising young player. John McGinn, excellent player. Buendia, just finding himself after a, you know, mixed first season. They've got, you know, other wingers, Traore and Leon Bailey, who maybe have underperformed, but they've got a wealth of quality in there. Um, Got excellent fullbacks now as well. Good defensive options. Douglas Louise, not sure if he's staying. I think they're also interested in another midfielder, whether that's uh, Basuma from Brighton, or I know they were interested in Calvin Phillips before City came in for him. So they're not messing around. Uh, They've got money. The owners will back Gerrard big time and, uh, yeah, they have got to have a strong season next season for sure. Yeah, no, I
0: agree. They are certainly looking like one of the more exciting Premier League sides at the moment. It's if obviously we saw with Leicester, obviously winning the league was a bit of an aberration, but certainly in terms of trying to break into the top four, Leicester had a go for a couple of seasons, just missed out on the final day, two seasons running. But Villa look like they they look like the next side shaping up to have a crack at that. Um, obviously, like we said, all the sides above them will be will be spending big and be trying to improve, but true business as well from villa you know um they're not shy of making a big signing
1: um i think it's it's high risk high reward as well yeah, because yeah. signing diego carlos is 29 coutinho i think is 29 um you know for for decent money on decent wages it's kind of like it's got to it's got to mean something and you don't want to sort of villa to implode and then you're stuck with all these expensive players um which look uh, hopefully doesn't happen for them but Let's see. Uh, it's 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 um it's exciting, but it's also a, a slight risk. Um, but also showing how you know you need to take risks maybe to kind of break the break the uh the kind of monopoly of the top six and and where do these clubs go? You know, we've seen Everton do it and they've failed miserably. And you know, obviously they survived in the end, but it'll be interesting to see what they do this summer, for example, because they've gone down that route of signing kind of experienced players kind of about age bracket uh for substantial fees and and wages and, and then it, it backfires you know horrendously so let's let's I think Villa will watch this space kind of club um big expectations um for good reason and I think high room for error <laughs> um, yeah. in, a, in a cynical way um but it is exciting I'm sure for Villa fans
0: you no, know, I mean what? Well, well, what I would say in terms of that comparison is, you know, Richarlison came in 50 million. Is he worth 50 million? I don't know. He's bagged most the of, most of their goals the last few seasons, so you'd have to say perhaps yes. But then you look at uh, Bernard came in from Shakhtar for a, you know a silly amount of money, really. Alan came in from Napoli. You know, they've they've brought in big players for big money, and it's not worked. Where I think when you look at what Villa have done, you know, they brought in. Ollie Watkins from Brentford before they became a Premier League side, they brought in Buendia from a relegated Norwich side. They brought in Kamara on a free, Coutinho mm. was a, a very cut price deal about 17 million pounds, I think, for Coutinho. Mm. Um, so I think that you know they're buying, they're finding the the, the, the top players out there who are available for a, a cut price fee or you know no fee at all. So I think yeah, there's buying, there's there's they spending big money on big players, and then this you know. Seeing an opportunity with to sign big players and bringing them in for a much smaller fee than you might otherwise have done, and I think that's what Villa are doing. They're assembling a very the, the best squad you can for a rather limited kind of fee, and I, I do kind yeah. of admire that strategy. They've, they've brought together a very, very good squad without spending relatively an awful lot of money.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, they, they received a lot of money for Jack Grealish, and look, they spent they spent all of that last summer. They spent you know thirty million pounds on Leon Bailey, thirty plus on, Emi uh, uh twenty five on Danny Ings. They spent a lot of money over the last few years, but and there have been hits and misses. But what I would say about Villa is that the way in which they operate. Um, you know, when they signed Danny Ings, when they signed Callum Chambers from Arsenal, you don't hear anything about it and then the deal's done. They're very, very, very smooth operators in the transfer market. Um, clearly been planning early doors. They've got a lot of their They've signed three players already. Um, you know, Coutinho, um, you know, that was meant to be, I think, a kind of 40 million uh, clause and they got it down to 17 million, slashes wages drastically. Diego Carlos, I'm sure, is on decent money and it, it required a decent uh, transfer fee, but it's a good signing as a centre-back. And then Bubakar Kamara, Kamara, who definitely would have been interested uh, or there would have been interested in other clubs, but they wrapped his signing up nice and early um, with minimum fuss. So I think, yeah, to draw that comparison or distinction rather between uh, Villa and Everton in terms of the way they operate and the kind of players that they sign um, is is probably a bit more promising um, for Villa, for sure.
0: Let's move on then to another another side with with huge aspirations and rightly so. Perhaps similarly to Villa, really in terms of where they'll be looking to you know breaking into new ground in the Premier League table, and that is obviously Newcastle, who went from relegation zone, actually bottom of the league, to flirting with the top half of the table, and they've really got a springboard as well, similarly to Aston Villa to to mm. push to the next level. Perhaps their squad is starting off from a, a lower a lower quality to begin with. Uh, but they're certainly not frightened of making signings. Bruno Grimareg in January has already been an absolute steal. He's been a fantastic player. Joe Linton, new lease of life. And suddenly that Newcastle side that looks all but down and out under Steve Bruce in October and November has absolutely come alive. Mm. And they must be only a couple of signings away from being able to break into kind of that top eight or nine kind of teams.
1: Oh, yeah, big time. Um, if you look across that squad, they made some really good additions in January, I thought. Yeah. Um, I think they're, they're close to signing a young promising forward from Saint Etienne. I think his name's Hugo Eketike um, for something like £25 million. Um, they're interested in hyper. I was reading this morning that they were looking to pursue deals with Nathan Ake and Calvert-Lewin, but it looks like maybe they'll be priced out of those moves. Uh, they'll be linked with Dean Henderson um, in goal. But look, I think they'll be smart with their additions. I think they've got a good kind of uh, backbone at the moment. I think they'll be looking to strengthen and centre-back um, I know they're looking to sign uh, Sven Botman from Lille, but I think he might be going to AC Milan. Um, but I think, yeah, a big summer for them. I don't think they'll go crazy. They won't be signing, you know, crazy players for crazy money. There might be one, um, but apart from that, they'll be probably sensibly strengthening their squad um, and obviously complying with fa- financial pay- fair players <laughs> as much as that is relevant Um who knows? But yeah, big summer for them for sure. I'm sure they'll continue on that trajectory. Um, forgetting also that, you know, they signed Trippier, who then got injured quite quickly, and Callum Wilson's been injured for a long time. So those two coming back into the fold towards the end of the season would be big and that'll be a big part of their season next year. Um so yeah, obviously exciting times for Newcastle fans. And the energy in St. James's part when I went, I must say, was was pretty, pretty electric. Um and that midfield that you mentioned of Bruno Grimareich and uh, Joe Linton looked really kind of promising and energetic and athletic and purposeful and exciting uh, for them. And, you know, they've got Sam Maximam as well. He's a great player. Um, they've got some decent young players as well. Um, so, yeah, good time to be a Newcastle fan, for sure.
0: Indeed. Let's move over, I think, to Europe. Um, I think we've, we've analysed most of the action in the Premier League. We'll turn our attention to the the Top clubs in Europe, then because there's no shortage of transfer drama over there. Uh you alluded to uh Barcelona, um, talked about in, in our plan, um, wrapping up the free signings early on of Kessier from Milan and also Christensen. But the same old issue that they faced with um a couple of the signings back in January, they could January were January, where they uh couldn't register them straight away. Um so Barcelona clearly not out of the woods just yet with um their financial financial fiasco, really. Also lit with Rafinha from Leeds. Um, but it's it's a strange one because it, on the one hand, all these signings are making Kessier, Christensen, brought in our Bamiang, a couple of others, completely rebuilt their front three in January, but they're still not able to register players in certain circumstances. And it's it's difficult to know exactly what stage they're at. Obviously, they had a resurgence in La Liga towards the end of last season, but and it's still unclear as to how much this financial situation is, is holding them back.
1: Yeah, definitely. They still need to shift a lot of players. Uh, I think they're looking to get rid of Samuel Umtiti, um, and Longley, you know, centre-backs who they sign for big money on big wages. Um, you know, they've got Dani Alves there. Yeah, exactly. Dembele, whose contract currently has expired, but I think they're trying to offer him new terms. He might go to PSG, but maybe not now because Mbappe is staying at PSG. Um, look, they're, they're the front runners to sign Robert Lewandowski uh, from Bayern Munich but I just don't know how they're going to afford him um, or register him for that matter because they've already got a queue of, of players to be registered with uh, Kessier and Christensen they're looking to sign uh, Marcos Alonso, maybe Aspilicueta as well so all these players to rebuild the squad but they, they're they not quite able to do it yet um, also being linked with Rafinha who probably command a fee of about £60 million pounds. Um, so again, very interesting to see how they navigate the, the transfer window, because it's always, when it's been quite tumultuous over the last few years and, uh, they, they've managed to finish second in La Liga, but, you know, it's still early, early stages of Xavi's kind of rebuild and, uh, you know, they've still got some older players, some of those players that we're talking about, you know, they're not exactly young and up and coming, they're kind of established, uh and uh, will command high wages and big transfer fees. And Barcelona struggled to compete with kind of the English clubs uh, in that regard. Um, so, yeah, definitely want to watch during the summer for sure.
0: I think a couple of the, the signings seem a little bit strange. I think Lewandowski perhaps, I mean, there's one year on his contract, maybe wait a year, game for free next summer. But at the same time, I, I, they've got Aubameyang as well. Do they really need him? But at the same time, they don't want to miss out on him. So, Mm. To an extent, that kind of makes sense. Arguably, the best player in the world at the moment, I'm second behind Benzema, perhaps. So that that to an extent makes it makes a bit of sense. But I think Rafinha from Leeds is a, is a strange one. Of all the players in the world that Barcelona could attract, they're going for a a player who's going to cost them sixty million from you know fr- from Leeds. There must be more shrewd signings out. Not that Rafini's yeah. a bad player, but if you're struggling for cash and you you know you're financially kind of restrained, that he seems a particularly with this price tag, a strange player to go for. I mean, players who you sign from Premier League clubs, I think naturally, just because of the amount of money that Premier League clubs have, are perhaps slightly inflated, arguably. You, you see that certainly when players move between Premier League teams. But that, I think, it just kind of screams with kind of the mess that, the how they got into this mess in the first place. It doesn't seem like the most sensible yeah. transfer business, really.
1: No, I agree. I think if Rafinha had been relegated with Leeds I think he would have probably become a Barcelona player already Um, but now I think you've got to readjust I don't think signing him for 60 million is maybe that sensible Um, but look he's a great player so who knows Uh, but yeah I agree the kind of it's, it's hard to trust Barcelona and whether they've really learned from their mistakes because they're not out of the woods in terms of the previous mess and they're still looking to sign players who you'd think oh is this really who Barcelona should be going for they spent a lot of money. There was a lot of movement in January. Um, you know, Ferran Torres was kind of like 50-odd million pounds from Manchester City. Whether they've paid all of that, yeah, I don't think they have. Aubameyang, look, free signing, but I think he's promised a fair bit of money if he stays on. Uh, Adama Traore, that loan's expired. They've got so many players who they signed for big money who they'd rather not be there but are then also looking to sign players for big money. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a state of flux. And uh, I agree with you. It's kind of, it's strange to see them kind of targeting these different kinds of players. And and you wouldn't think that maybe that's what Barcelona need right now, but look, we will see. I find it exciting. I find it fascinating to see how Barcelona and Real Madrid kind of try and keep up with, um, you know, the the financial clout of the Premier League. And I think it's really difficult, but Real Madrid have sort of shown to manage it quite well at the moment. But they're coming up for a big seat summer as well because they're not signing Mbappe. Clearly, they've missed out on Haaland. A lot of their players are really getting on now. So we'll see what they do as well. But yeah, interesting to see what Barcelona and Real Madrid do in Spain.
0: Yeah, I think certainly them and Bayern, you would look at as being the top teams really who could challenge the English clubs in the Champions League next season. Juventus, losing Dabala, lots of big-name players leaving as well, you would expect. Dortmund obviously lost Haaland, but been active in trying to replace in the Bruyne Adiemi from Salzburg. A couple of other signings as well who look to be decent decent additions to that squad, whether Dortmund is in a position to champ- challenge the Champions League is up for debate. They're probably not, mm. um, you would think. But then you look at Bayern as well. Like I said, we spoke about Lewandowski. They've already brought in two exciting players from Ajax. Mas was one. Um, um, the, the others escaping for the time being, and then obviously, if they could get money over the line, it would be a fantastic addition because Leroy Sane didn't quite work out. Um, maybe, yeah, they could, yeah, work, but, um, they could be losing be in-
1: Serge Nabry as well, I think. Yeah, uh, as well. he's
0: been linked with Arsenal potentially, hasn't he? I think,
1: yeah, I could don't see that work. happening for sure, but um, maybe Real Madrid,
0: perhaps. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one in, in which you know, City of obviously brought in a huge sign in and you'd expect a few more big ones and every other top club around Europe, really, who was perhaps every other club in the quarterfinal of the Champions League this season, let's say, already looks like their squad's been weakened this summer in a, in a mm-hmm. weird kind of way. So it's a, it's a strange one where City really look like they've stolen a match, um, but we'll have to wait and see how that materialises um, over the course of the season. I think perhaps one final segment for this show that we'll move on to is just a quick talk about internationals. Obviously, the World Cup would have been starting this week in any normal kind of four-year cycle. This would be this the week in which the World Cup would be kicking off. Obviously, we need to wait a little bit longer. We've still got teams qualifying for the World Cup at this stage. Um, Wales obviously being the, the most relevant to us, going into England's group, also one of the home nations. First World Cups in Sweden in 1958. Um, it was an incredible, it was an incredible game, actually. I mean, it was a it was a as a final, but lo- loosely termed a final. It was a with for both sides having not qualified for the World Cup for many years, it was a a very, very, very entertaining game. And Wayne Hennessy, for all the bail will get applauded, it's had the absolute game of his life. Mm. Uh, is arguably more responsible than any other player in that Wales squad of you know, send them on the sending them on the plane to Qatar
1: yeah i think wales of all teams maybe to beat ukraine um wales would maybe be the the best kind of opponent in the sense that it meant so much to them and ideally ukraine would be there too um but i think it's great for wales um having not qualified for a long time uh for the world cup or i don't even know how long it's been um yeah exactly so yeah, great news for them. Love to see, you know, the likes of Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey kind of continuing to, to clock up more minutes for internationals than their, <laughs> their domestic clubs, um, which will be an interesting kind of thing to watch out for, given that there's only a few months before the World Cup. I mean, crazy to think there's a World Cup in in December. I can't get my head around it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, great for Wales. They'll obviously be in a group competing against us, uh, England. Um and the USA, so plenty of kind of uh uh yeah uh, battles to, to observe in that. But yeah, um a shame for Ukraine because they did so well against Scotland in that in that first like first uh round of playoffs, and uh I think also probably deserved to beat Wales as well. They played really well. Um, but yeah, it wasn't to be.
0: It's easy to kind of overlook Wales, I think. Certainly the fact that they had to come through the, the qualifiers and they had to come through the European qualifiers, and they get overlooked by and rightly so, to an extent, by all the top teams. You know, your, your France's, your your Belgium's, even your England's, your Italy's, your Germany's. But they are twenty first in the world in the rankings, and you know, mm. you you know, you can't take the FIFA rankings to the pinch of salt potentially. But they are one of the top sides, and they are going to be a force. And you would expect them probably to get through that group now with with uh, Iran and the US. You would certainly, you know, you wouldn't write Wales off getting to that group at all. And the fact that they they did so well in Euro 2016. They did well to get out of the group at Euro 2020. They're a side who know how to get out of the of yeah. stages and maybe even get a run together. So I think it's going to be a very, very exciting tournament for Wales.
1: Well, you'd say at this point that they they are probably the favourites to get out of the group, which does put a level of pressure on them. Um, and it could end up being quite underwhelming if they don't, because, you know, the US and Iran, I'm sure they, they have some decent players. I'm sure they'll be well up for it. But um, yeah, I think I agree with you. They they did so well at the Euros. Uh when was it? Six, six years ago, five years ago? Six years uh, ago. Yeah, crazy. Um and yeah, so very exciting to see them, to see them for the World Cup um, for the first time for, you know, for as long as we can remember. Absolutely.
0: Also, it does raise the the very interesting scenario of where does Gareth Bale go? Um, and there's so many fascinating possibilities. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I was reading this morning uh, in the Times that Cardiff City would be jump at the opportunity to offer him a short term contract, whether he'd accept or or whatever, just to kind of play for a short term period. I think Ramsey would be similar um, because he's not in Juventus's plans. Whether they just save themselves completely for this World Cup, um, who knows what what will happen? But yeah, I think Gareth Bale. I think it would either be something like that, maybe, or he'd go to the MLS, but I'm not sure. I, I would imagine that he just completely wants to focus on the World Cup. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that shapes certain transfer moves this summer as well, um, not just in Wales, but other clubs as well, because uh, and other nations as well, because they'll be wanting to focus on making sure they make the World Cup squad and also being in perfect condition for that World Cup in, in December.
0: Indeed. I think we've got two two places left remaining, I think it's between, you know, you've got Peru, UAE, New Zealand, it's those kind of teams, you know, Ball, CONCACAF, it's those kind of um, confederations battling it out for the last couple of spots, but it's starting to take shape now, I think for England and Wales, I don't think they could have asked for a much more straightforward group really, I know England had the likes of Panama and Tunisia last time, but Mm -hmm. And again, you know, going back, we had our Algeria. I mean, we made mess that one, didn't we, in twenty ten with that, like, you know Algeria, USA teams like that. But looking at where England have, you know, how much England have improved, how much Wales have improved, and um, you know, if you've got any kind of aspirations, USA and Iran shouldn't be causing you any issues, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think England against Wales would be an interesting game because we saw how Scotland did against England at a major tournament, and that was you know Scotland who are, you know. Being perfectly honest, and not the same calibre as Wales. So, Wales gets mm. a major tournament. I think Wales could give England a really good game, actually. I don't think that's give gimme give me at all. Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: England will not be looking forward to that, I'm sure. And yeah. Wales will be.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, and you look at Euro 2016 as well, that was a, England did well to nick that as well. I think England Wales would be a very tasty game.
1: Uh, it's just dawned on me, just as you were saying, like the World Cup really should be kicking off now. But then I think about it, like after the incredibly long season, uh, you know, it's just crazy the demands that are on the players at the moment. The fact that they're they're playing nations league games right now, like really, like on a World Cup year when you're moving it to the, like winter, just just scrap the nations league, give them a big break because they start preseason quite shortly, and then it's Premier League, and then there's like a week in between, you know, the Premier League fixtures or domestic fixtures ending, and then the World Cup starting, and then you're back, and then it's like knockout for Europe. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that we should be about to start having the World Cup, which would be great, I think, this summer. I mean, especially for me, given that I've just finished uni and I'd just be like, oh, I'll be watching the World Cup all the time. And now it's going to be at Christmas time, which is bizarre. But yeah, yeah I guess uh, unprecedented times and exciting in a way. Uh,
0: yeah. I suppose we had a bit of a backlog maybe with, with COVID this season kind of affecting it at the start. Maybe that kind of caused yeah. a, a backlog later on in the season. But no, I do agree with you. It's they do need a rest at some point, and you know, you know they get paced ridiculous amounts. To play football, but you want to see them play at the highest level. And if they're playing, you know, a couple of times a week, every week, all year round, then you're not going to see it. Um, mm. Simple as that. They do need a break at some point. I'm um, kind of all for the Nations League in the sense that it stops England playing, you know, your San Marino's and your Andorras and your teams like that on a regular basis. Yeah, um, it does. They even if they were turned friendlies instead of Nations League. It's still far more beneficial to England to be playing even the likes of Hungary or Germany or, or Italy, um, so to, you know, to that extent, I think it's positive. I think putting the, the extra kind of caveat on of promotion and relegation and stuff like that is a little bit unnecessary. Yeah, um, but um, I, in terms of, I think it's much, far better preparation for the World Cup than they would otherwise have had. Um, so there is there is a positive in amongst that, um. But yeah, going to be a strange old season, um and perhaps we'll reconvene and discuss that. Um, We'll wait and see. But, um, yeah, we've covered a lot there. Um, So, yeah, what are you looking forward to then next season, just to wrap up? Arsenal Champions League push, England World Cup push? What what do we think? Um, What's going to be... uh, I mean, first of all,
1: I'm I'm very excited to see how this summer pans out in terms of transfer movement across, you know, all clubs, especially Arsenal. Um, You know, as we've spoken about in the show, lots of big clubs need to do big things. Smaller clubs need to do big things especially with the added kind of incentive of players needing minutes uh, before the World Cup, uh, not wanting to jeopardise things before the World Cup. Will that influence the market? Um, so I'm looking forward to that, first of all. Next season, excited for, for Arsenal to kind of, you know, hopefully step step up and uh, push on from their, their season this year. Um, I can't say I'm excited for Arsenal to be back in the Europa League, but I think... The fact that we'll be playing European football giving minutes to young players who maybe didn't have enough minutes this season likes of Tavares and conga and you know the rest of them so I'm excited for that that level of competition um the World Cup it will be fascinating um I'm very excited to kind of yeah just get behind get behind and and behind England and watch all the games um I find it slightly disconcerting, obviously, the fact that it's in Qatar with all the kind of questions around human rights and the fact that, you know, it's at Christmas time and why uh, and the player welfare and all that sort of stuff. But I'm sure when it comes around, that will be an excitement. And I guess it's it's, it's something that's never happened before. So in that sense, it is exciting. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for just, I guess... Uh, Yeah, uh, a kind of resumption to normality in a sense that we won't be affected by COVID, but at the same time, unprecedented kind of World Cup in the middle. So it's also going to be a very strange season. And also how that impacts the kind of second half of the season, Um, because, you know, it's not easy to have a World Cup, something as, as big as that and not have a substantial break off and then come back straight away and resume you know kind of the intensity of the premier league and the champions league so i think it's going to be a really interesting season and one that we've never faced before and i think there'll be there will be some surprises and kind of like unexpected uh series of events that unravel um definitely so i'm i'm excited to kind of observe it from a from a kind of position a bit further back and uh yeah what about you
0: well no, i mean you can't really not say the World Cup, can you? I'm trying not to get into the state. I, I did. I started when the draw was initially made and you look at, you start looking at the next round and how the tournament might shape up. And then I quickly stopped doing that because you find that England, if they win the group, play one of France or Argentina most likely in the next round. Maybe Spain even, I think, from what I remember. So I quickly stopped doing that because, you know, I don't want to start thinking that after all, this England will be out in the round of 16. But I think, I think England will be up against it this summer. I don't think they're going to have their the easiest run they've had in the last two tournaments. But, you know, it's where England have failed when they've come up against the big teams, you know, and you don't deserve to win tournaments if you can't beat the big teams. And England has shown they can beat the, you know, your Ukraines and your your Denmarks and your Sweden and the knockouts, but they've not beaten a, they've beaten a weakened Germany, but they've not beaten a France or a Belgium or a Brazil. And, you know, for all they've reached a final and a semi-final, you've got to beat one of the big teams. And that's what I'm looking forward to now because when you look at how the, as I did at how the tournament might shape up for England. They're going to come up against some big names very early on, um, which is new ground for Gareth Southgate's kind of England tenure. So that's Mm -hmm. something to to look forward to. I think top four will be interesting in the Premier League. Maybe not so much title race. I think we could probably settle that now. Um, But top four certainly will be a lot closer. I think Chelsea, Arsenal, United, Spurs, will all be a very similar standard come next season. Um, I'm very excited
1: as well to say to see Haaland play in the Premier yeah. League I mean I'll be very not excited when he plays against Arsenal but <laughs> and if it just come becomes a kind of joke but i'm um, I'm interested to see how that plays out and I'm sure it will be a a huge success but yeah that that's very exciting to see one of the world's most exciting best players in the in the Premier League for sure
0: yeah well all that's look forward to you you're my city fan and to dread so <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be a funny old season. Despite you know COVID and that having you know seemingly behind us now, it'll, be, it'll still be a while before football's back to normal yeah. um, with the World Cup in Qatar. But yeah, it should be fascinating. Uh, thanks for joining me throughout this season. We've had some wonderful chats, and that was perhaps the best of the bunch, certainly the longest of the bunch. Um, so yeah, fantastic. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks, Alfred, for joining me. And we'll see you all perhaps next season. Goodbye.